You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. just kind of look at Acts chapter 1. Um, I'm going to just read actually in verses 4, probably starting there, um, and then we're going to really focus on verses 12 through 14. So some of it is just kind of setting up in our minds where we're at. Jesus has, is talking about the ascension. Luke kind of carries over the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts here in verse 4. He, he starts talking about uh, the ascension that he gives in greater detail that's also listed at the end of Acts. So It says in Acts uh, chapter one, verse four, it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, we're gonna look at that word together in fellowship and being in a group in more detail today, but they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, will you at this time really do what we thought you had come to do? You know, will, will you bring the greatness of Israel back to its former glory? Is this the time for that? Verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's like, it's just not for you to worry about those kinds of things right now. There's, there are other things that I'm planning to do in the in-between. But, don't worry about when those things will happen, but let me tell you, verse eight, but you will receive power, and ninth graders, are you listening? Because this is one of the verses you're memorizing that you're gonna be reciting for us next week, right? Verse eight, you, so hopefully some of you can recite it, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Verse nine says, and he said to, the, to them these things as they were looking on, he lifted up, he, he, as they were looking on, he, he was lifted up and a, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven with their jaws dropped down to the ground, okay, I added that part, but they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, basically, what are you looking at? <laughs> men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Like, what are you looking at? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that is our hope and our future hope. We long for him to come in the same manner in which he left. And yet, this is the kind of sense that, well, what are you, what are you waiting for? You, you knew he was leaving and yet he has already told you he's gonna leave you with the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He's gonna leave you with that. He's not leaving you alone. And then, and as he goes into heaven, he's given you a job to do. And your job right now is not to worry about all the times and the seasons, but is to obey. And what did he tell you to do? Go and wait in the city. Because soon, I'm gonna clothe you with power, all right? And that's what we know as Pentecost in Acts chapter two. In fact, I'm planning on Pentecost Sunday, which is in two Sundays, uh, to focus on that chapter as well. But as we kind of set that up, we think about this concept of them looking ahead and up there in, in this, this time. And now put ourselves in the time frame before we read verses 12 through 15. We have this period where Jesus has, has risen from the dead and that happened days right after, um, right after when we, we would know it's Passover. So when Jesus was in the upper room with the Lord's Supper, the Jewish uh, people in, in Jerusalem, they were celebrating 
Passover. They had just sacrificed the sacrificial lamb and they were celebrating Passover. And Jesus rose from that, died and rose from the grave on that weekend, that time, which was very important, very influential. Uh, it was very purposeful, you could say. And then what do we have? We have a period of 50 days when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. Maybe many of you are familiar with this, but let me just indulge me here. This Penta, this 50, 50 days after the Passover is when Jesus uh, has the Holy Spirit descend and fall in Acts chapter two. So this is about 10 days prior to that uh, when he ascends into heaven. And then we read in verses 12 through 15 or 14 what, what goes on in that time and what they're doing in the meantime. So it's that Passover to Pentecost. There's all that time in between there, that 40 days that Jesus is appearing to different people. He is um, appearing to people all over the region, really, and uh, is what we have a few detailed counts of what happened, but certainly there was much more that, that happened during that time that we don't know about. And so then the ascension takes place. Jesus leaves uh, in bodily form, and, and in 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power, he says. And so then we, we jump into verse 12. So imagine Jesus has just left. They've just experienced all they've experienced in the last 40 days and going through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the appearances and now the ascension. And now in verse 12 we read their response. What did they do? Verse 12 of Acts chapter one. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now, the Mount of Olives, or the Mount of, called Olivet, the Olivet Discourse, there's a variety of things that took place in the Mount of Olives. Jesus was one of his most frequent locations that he visited. It was right outside Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, right outside near Bethany, is where he would preach and teach and gather large groups of people. So it was a place that they were very familiar with, very common, uh, very known to them, and even just that little shout out that Luke gives us that this happened on the Mount called Olivet brings our mind back to all that Jesus taught them all that he did there in the mount called Olivet or the Olivet or the Mount of Olives which is near Jerusalem in verse 12 it says a Sabbath day journey away just a weird little side there of what he says there the Sabbath day journey it was the Sabbath then so they couldn't travel far or else they would have been breaking the law and uh, the the law and so basically a Sabbath day journey they were allowed to I looked it up it was about they could travel 2,000 cubits outside of the city under rabbinic law a Jew would travel on the Sabbath could walk that amount any beyond that would be considered work and they'd be breaking the Sabbath so it's just fascinating that Luke kind of puts that in there to remind us that they were just a Sabbath day journey away right there right outside the city walls there on the Mount of Olives they go back into the city in verse 13 Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went to the upper room. I love this, again, reminder. As we're reading and as you're students of the word, you think, okay, upper room, where is that? What, what took place there? And even as they enter there into the upper room, our minds go back to communion, the Lord's table, what Jesus did when he broke the bread with them, when he, when he shared the cup and, and he talked about the Lord's Supper, and this is my body which is given for you. These words that he spoke is how he took the Passover celebration and he transformed it into a new covenant celebration that was represented as himself as the sacrificial lamb. So all that took place there in that upper room just hours before he was gonna be arrested and crucified took place in that space, that upper room. 
And so now those disciples, they go back into Jerusalem, they go into that upper room, they open the door and they walk into that place and I imagine just trying to speculate as to what they would have felt, what they would have been, the, the, the thoughts that would have been going through their minds, the smell of the room of just a few days prior, Jesus was there, right there. Jesus appeared to them even uh, after he had risen from the dead in the upper room there. And, and all the experiences that they shared together in that place, they went back to the upper room. And look at verse 13, where they were staying. Okay, so this is, again, they don't live in Jerusalem. Many of these uh, people have lived in Galilee in the northern region and they've been traveling for the last three years so they don't really have a down payment or, or a mortgage payment going on right now. Many of them, they don't have a place to live and so they're allowed to use this upper room that Jesus has requested for them. Someone's allowing them to use it, which is fantastic, right? So where they were staying. And it gives a list of this fellowship. This is what I want us to kind of focus on a little bit this morning. The fellowship that is here, the fellowship of Christ, the group, the people, who is present. We get a list of the disciples. It says where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, or I think also known as Nathaniel, and uh, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And there's one missing. Who is it? Well, not Jesus. That is true. Jesus is missing, but one of the disciples out of the 12 is missing, and that is Judas of Iscariot, or Judas Iscariot. Most likely the location in which he came from, the Iscariot. Because there's another Judas here mentioned. Just Judas, the son of James, they're not the, sa- they're not the same person. Kind of a similar name. Um, and in fact, those two at the end, we don't know much about those two final um, Disciples Simon the Zealot and Judas the, the son of James, but they're part of the 12, the pillars of the church. And then what, is it, what does it list for us? Another unique details, and what is it that they're doing? In verse 14, so these disciples gather in the upper room. All these, it says, were in one accord, or some of your translations say um, continuing together or in unity. It says they were all in one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So that's gonna be the text we're gonna look at today. I just want us to consider some of these details in this passage and apply them to our lives and as what we are seeking to do in every time we gather together. But I want us to consider this concept of the fellowship of Christ, the fellowship. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan or a kind of a Lord of the Rings J.R. Tolkien nerd like myself, uh, beyond just the videos and the movies, uh, but also the books, Um, You know the first book there in the trilogy is The Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring. And maybe some of you know the the movies, you've read the books, and you can even think with me that concept of the different people and characters, the hobbits, the wizards, um, right, the the Boromir, uh, Aragorn, all these different Legolas, the elves, all of that. And some of you are like, wow, you're really nerdy, okay? Well, come on, it's J.R. Tolkien, right? This is amazing. He's one of the best authors, writers of all time. Um, But he, he wrote this story about this group this fellowship, a gathering of people with like-minded purpose and mission, and their mission, the nine as they gathered together, was to contrast and go against the nine, uh, the evil, dark kind of spirits, I'm even forgetting their names right now, um, as they were going against the nine dead kings that were going against the nine um, of the fellowship that were trying to take the one ring of power and destroy it for all time and destroy the evil one of Sauron. 
And, and the story is so captivating because it reminds us, reminds us of this great adventure that we all long to be on. This great adventure that we all have within our hearts of, of gathering together with a band of people with a, on a mission and a purpose to accomplish some great thing that will save the world and change the world forever. We, I mean, every movie is practically made after this story. Every adventure story, every kind of uh, uh, movie Hollywood scene that we can think about is, is often taking place of the same kind of arc and narrative. This small ragtag group up against the forces of evil, you know, kind of taking this subversive way in the background and kind of sneak attacking from behind and and eventually gonna, gonna, the end is happy ending and and the evil is destroyed and good wins and light triumphs over darkness. And this is the story that that in a great and mighty way that J.R. Tolkien gives before us in this, this massive world that he creates in this science fiction. But in many ways, it does remind us of even what's happening in this place and in this space in reality, outside of science fiction, we, we, we poke our minds right into this place of what it was like for them. The original fellowship, the 12, now reduced to 11, and particularly without their leader, the rabbi, Jesus, the one in whom they have been following, is no longer with them. And what would it have been like? And in this original fellowship, there's that, that, that group, the core, the pillars of the church, the disciples are present. In a new order, they are actually listed here. Uh, we see Peter and John and James are the f- three that are listed first. And it's probably because they arise to most prominence out of the, out of the 12, out of the disciples. Uh, in fact, in the book of Acts and others, the, those are the three most mentioned, most featured. Although others like Matthew and and others write the Gospel of Matthew and have great influence on the church and others we know had great influence around the world, Uh, we just don't know about as much of what they did outside uh, outside of history. And so we see and we try to try to feel of what it was like to be part of that team, that fellowship, that group, banding together and in a same manner and likewise like this very present darkness that they were experiencing and that they have just witnessed days before take their Lord Jesus and nail him to a cross. Evil seemed to be ruling and reigning and all of a sudden Sauron is defeated and the one ring is, is tossed into the Mount Doom, right? Okay, right? You have Jesus rise from the grave conquering death And yet, the mission isn't done there. The fellowship has not disbanded, although they scattered for fear, and there was only a few disciples, I think John and maybe one other, who who was actually at the cross seeing Jesus. The rest are nowhere to be seen or mentioned. They're afraid. Peter uh, betrays Jesus uh, and, and denies him. And now they're scattered even during the times we find that some of them were up back Galilee, back working their job. They were back uh, uh, fishing and Jesus visits them while they're fishing. And, uh, and so we, we see they're probably trying to figure out what it is they're supposed to do now and Jesus gathers them at the Mount of Olives. He empowers them in the sense of go back, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit in a short time and this fellowship must stay together. They are the start of the church and yet I love the way Luke as he so constantly does. He so constantly, more than any of the gospel other, other gospel writers, constantly reminds us of the influence that women had in the beginning of the church and the importance that women take place in the modern church today and in the founding of the church then. We have the, yes, the 
disciples that are mentioned by name and then specifically he gives us a reminder that in that place, in that fellowship, the 12, the, the, the 11, the pillars of the church here to start are, are there and yet in one accord they're devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And I love this concept, the, the women here. Who, is, who are these? When we walked through Luke, we looked at this uh, and we were reminded that Jesus very often in the 12 disciples but was often as they traveled had a larger group outside of the 12 going everywhere with them. And we read in a variety of passages in Luke uh, 8 and 23 and 24 and other passages where the women are featured, specifically Mary of Magdalene. We know at the very end of Luke that the very first people to receive the gospel message that Jesus has risen, the very first people who have received this, the very first evangelists you could say, are women who are going to the tomb and are given the message of the gospel which would have been anti-culture then because they were not viewed as someone who could actually authenticate something like this, but it, because God valued this and valued both male and female, he empowers these women to be very important within the church. And so in, in Luke, we see that it came to pass, the word says, afterward that he went throughout every city and village, I think this is Luke 8, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene was there, out, whom, uh, out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna are mentioned, and many others, he says, which ministered unto him out of their substance. So in fact, many of these women, we can look at profiles later on, were actually pretty wealthy and, and had um, uh, very well-to-do means and helped support uh, the ministry of the disciples that would not have been able to happen uh, without the support of these very influential women at the beginning of the church. And I just love the fact that Luke just kind of creates this beautiful, um, this picture of the church that we see here, right? Here at the beginning, this fellowship, hope, fellowship, church and we see right within us in Acts chapter one this, this homogenous group here of, of saints and saved and believers and yet here both men and women coming together in one accord praying to Jesus Christ and obeying him with what he has set to do. It's simple but I find it very profound in this passage of what we see laid out for us. And then I wanna focus on one person, one particular person that Luke takes time to specifically name for us that, that is present in this original fellowship group that's meeting at the beginning of Acts 1 that is going to then start off this amazing uh, global network of churches that we experience today that starts here in Acts chapter 1. And that is Mary, the mother of Jesus, is specifically focused here on this time. And, and I find it fascinating, and I, I, some of this is more just conjecture and some of my own thoughts. Like I don't have much to read into besides just what it would be like to be Mary, you know? I, and it's part of just as we read God's word, I don't, I don't know, but I'm just saying, what would it have been like? And yes, this is Mother's Day and we're here to honor mothers, but I think Luke specifically honors Mary here in this time. He could have just said, and the women and the brothers of Jesus or the family of Jesus, but he focuses that here at the beginning of the church, the start of the church, in this very influential prayer meeting, we have Mary who's present. And it, it harkens back to our reminder of 
of Luke chapter one. You can turn over there with me if you'd like. I'm just gonna just briefly kind of peruse a few of these ideas where, where Mary is, again, focused on here as she is selected by God to bear Jesus Christ, to bear the Son of God, and to go through this amazing transformation in her life as a, as a young girl who, who would be a virgin and yet bring forth the Son. It is amazing. What would it be like? What would she be feeling? And, and the Bible speaks about how she took all of these things in Luke chapter two after, these, after the birth and she pondered them and as she began to try to understand well, all that she would go through, it, it says in Luke one that Mary said in verse 46 and 47, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is called the magnificent as she has this prayer song, if you would. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, Mary says. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. Do we not today? This is an amazing person to think and consider about how God used Mary. <laughs> It just highlights what Luke is trying to teach us. That God is no, shows no partiality. That God, God is going to bless the, the poor and the lowly, even the socially kind of looked down upon. He is going to resurrect them and use them for great purposes within his church. And I, I just find the beauty in this passage of her prayer and, and how she is, is honored and respected within the church here in this place and what she, her place that she has within the church is so amazing. And uh, Luke chapter two, we read after that, it says that, um, that in these things that there was also going to be something that she was gonna go through. In Luke chapter two, verse 34 and 35, it says this child is appointed, speaking of Jesus, for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking to Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's a complicated passage, but there's this unique statement that I've always find interesting that it's speaking to Mary that your child is special. Jesus is like no other person ever been born. He is God, incarnate, veiled in flesh, deity, right? And yet, you are going to experience, Mary, something of the greatest joys in this world has to offer. It's just the blessing of, of watching and raising Jesus. And yet, your soul is gonna be pierced through as well. Just like Jesus was pierced through on the cross, I think in a similar way, it's saying that Mary would be there, pierced through with the sorrows that she had to experience. I mean, you can consider what it was like for her to be standing by the cross and watching Jesus be crucified for the world. I mean, just the uniqueness and the unique relationship that she had, and now you can think and picture her at the beginning here in Acts chapter one, having experienced and witnessed all of those things, and now as a bookend kind of matriarch in this situation, as, as the new church is being formed, as this new fellowship is coming together, as God is about to bring the Holy Spirit, it, we see her having the Holy Spirit filling her and bringing Jesus. We now see her now in older age as this matriarch coming in. And she was there at the beginning when Jesus came and now she's here at the beginning of this new church. And I find it a beautiful statement from Luke to remind us that Mary was there and present and supporting and praying with this group. I mean, one of my favorite songs is in Christmas time, uh, Mary, Did You Know? And it sometimes gets a bad rap because like, well, she did know. She was Mary, right? Well, I, I think in some of the thoughts that the song brings out is reminding us that 
could it possibly, could she have possibly known all that, that, that Jesus would do and all that he would face? Certainly not. The disciples barely even knew what was going on. Yes, she knew he was the Messiah. She knew he was God. And yet, did she fully understand that? I can't imagine she did at times as she tried to grapple with Jesus. Where are you? He's lost. Remember, they leave from Jerusalem and then three days later, they find him. Where is he? In the temple. And she's almost exasperated and like, Jesus, we've been looking all over for you. And, and he simply says, well, didn't you know I would be here in the temple about my father's business? And so this, this understanding of herself as her mo- mother and yet the song, Mary, did you know, always reminds me of this. That Did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water, that he would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. She has just experienced that. What an extraordinary thought. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that Your baby boy has walked where angels trod. When you kiss your little baby, you kissed the face of God. The miraculous and mysterious incarnation. God in flesh. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. That mystery is unlike anything on the face of this planet. There is no other religion that hearkens to anything of such magnitude. Even you could say such humble estate as, Jesus, as Mary herself says that God would, would condescend himself to such a humble estate to be born of a virgin like Mary, to take on human flesh. And then Mary sits here with this group ragtag guys <laughs> and a few women who've been supporting Jesus from the beginning, this small little fellowship. And yet from that little prayer meeting, God was going to change the entire world. And even today extends to us in 2021. That is what the kids say, mind-blowing, right? That is just, it is hard to fathom And so today, yes, in Protestant culture, we don't worship Mary, but I think it's important to consider honoring her and what God and how God used her. In the same sense, today we honor you as mothers and all that God uses you in our lives and all that God is doing through you for the future of the world as the word tells us to honor your father and your mother. And today we honor you and we look at Mary and consider the influence that she had upon Jesus, the disciples, and the church. And in this place, what a presence and a a statement of encouragement it must have been to those disciples. Like Mary's here. We'll be all right. This is incredible. The things and the wisdom that she must have had, I would love to have a conversation with her one day, right? (laughs) And so we see that right after this is a unique little statement as well. Uh, It says that Jesus' brothers were there. And some of you are like, I didn't know Jesus had brothers. Uh, when you look in the New Testament, Mark chapter six, verse three, it says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Joseph, or it's kind of named after Joseph, no doubt. But his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. 
And you can tell some of those names are very common names. And so many people would have had those names, just like even Jesus was a common name in a similar way to that time. So that's why he's Jesus of Nazareth, uh, that one from Nazareth. And so in Galatians 1, it also tells us that James was Jesus' brother, or you could say half-brother, uh, through the Holy Spirit, through the Virgin Mary. And so we consider the family of Jesus, literally, his family through Mary there are gathered. And in fact, I believe in Mark, it also tells us he had sisters as well. But they're gathered here. Jesus' family is present there. And the new family, the adopted family, you could say, the Peters, um, uh, the, the Matthews, the Nathaniels, the, this group that he has adopted into this family, the disciples, they're there as well. The women in whom he has influenced and saved and cast out demons from, Mary Magdalene, no doubt, most likely there in the present in this place. And now they are no longer disciples, they are apostles. They are no longer learners, they are sent ones. Apostles is sent out. And the family of God has been established. This fellowship is there. And it's a beautiful picture, a reminder of what really the church looks like today. Male and female coming together, men and women supporting one another, encouraging one another, gathering around the person of Jesus Christ as soon to be filled with the Holy Spirit, coming together really for God to equip us and to use us to change the world. And it's an incredible, powerful thing that we get to take part in. And so we think about this as we kind of draw some of these ideas into understanding as we think about this book of Acts in particular as this period that they're in, this waiting period. As we're gonna talk about prayer and waiting, a little bit of a transition here. As really in Acts, we see this transition happen between Jesus to the Holy Spirit, almost this handing off of the baton. And specifically, we see these disciples right there in the middle finding themselves in this transition. Followers of Jesus and now sent to be filled with the Holy Spirit to preach and it must have been an amazing transition for them as they tried to grapple with their identity and who they were called to be but Jesus trained them and now handing the baton for them and 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 we see even a similar way that the book of Acts almost functions in the Old Testament like the book of Joshua the book of Joshua serves as this kind of transitional book between kind of the old covenant or the the people of God and the wanderings and now transitioning to the conquering of the land and the establishing of a new nation within the promised land So this period of the patriarchal period of Abraham and the promised land now being settled and established through Joshua and what is being done for the nation to be settled. And in a similar manner, Jesus coming to establish and break them free as in the Exodus and Moses leading them. And as Jesus comes and breaks us free from death, now in Acts we see this transition where the apostles are founding the church and the Holy Spirit is empowering the settlement of what we experience today, the church. And we walk in light of that in the power of the Holy Spirit because of this period of Acts which details the history of Jesus Christ working through the Holy Spirit to establish his church and create a global movement that would change the world. And so it's a beautiful thing to consider, it's a wonderful thing to consider, just this short little prayer uh, meeting that they have here. And as, as we also consider what it was like to be them, to put ourselves in their shoes, as we imagine ourselves in this period of waiting and unknown. So imagine they're, they're waiting for something to come that they don't really understand. They're no doubt fearful for Jesus is not with them, and yet they're together, and what do we find them doing? They're coming together in one accord, and they're praying. They were united in prayer, 
Other versions are constantly devoted to prayer, constantly together in prayer. The word there means they're one mind, devoted in prayer, continuing together. So this is a concept of people coming together. We need people to gather corporately, to pray corporately, to read God's word together. No doubt Peter and the others were probably taking copies of the scripture or sharing all that Jesus has taught them and reflecting and reminding themselves what it is and trying to connect what Jesus has told them the last couple of days to what was happening currently in their state. For in a few chapters or a few verses, a few days from now, he's gonna get up and preach this amazing sermon. And he's gonna preach and 3,000 souls are gonna come into salvation and we see just the Holy Spirit working within the the seeds that have been planted within the disciples. And I think this is a a perfect picture of what I desire for the church today. A, a, A group of people together in one accord. John 17, 22 reminds us Jesus' words that they are one just as we are one. And he prays, Jesus prays for us that we would be one. We would be in one accord, unity through Christ. We, we even sang that old classic hymn, uh, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, this morning. It's hard to understand at times because some of the language is archaic, right? We don't say it in ways like that. But blessed be the tie that binds, the thing that unites us together, the thing that holds us together, our hearts in Christian love, the lyrics say. Blessed be that tie that our hearts are united and tied together in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. That this heaven and earth, this unity of both comes in the presence of God's people within the church that we participate in a heavenly yet earthly-like experience in a shadow-like form to what it will be like for eternity. But we experience that within the presence of the people of God. And this is the church beyond a service, beyond just a stage, beyond a building. It is the people of God, the gathered saints, the ecclesia, the assembly And then in this assembly, we find ourselves in this place, and maybe you specifically, maybe a little bit more so today, I I don't know where you come from, but you find yourself in this time of waiting, where where, where we we see the disciples, we see them coming, and they are obeying, first off. Jesus had told them, go to Jerusalem, go to the city. Don't leave, go back to to Galilee, to your home. Go to the city and wait. And that's something we all love to do, is it not? (laughs) We love to wait and uh, we're all very good at that are we not so I can move on I don't need to preach on that idea at all right Um, no we find ourselves in this space and place often and I find it to be very difficult (laughs) waiting is a challenge a lot of Christianity and I think a lot of faith isn't always about extraordinary action although there are amazing extraordinary times of God's movement and working miracles and action and and change and yet there are the times in between that we sometimes undervalue and say are are kind of worthless and toss aside just I need the next mountain I need the next experience I need the next feeling and we go running hard after that when sometimes God wants us in the in-between to simply wait and slow down and to wait for his lead. Waiting, I think, in many ways is is not just sitting and twiddling our thumbs, it's waiting in anticipation. It's waiting, as Peter says, with a living hope that they're waiting, but they're not without hope. They're, They're waiting, but they're living and walking in faith. They're walking in faith, knowing that Jesus is doing a great and mighty work within them. And our lives are like this in so many times that waiting, when Jesus puts us in times of waiting, he is putting us in a time of preparation. 
And I think at times we are so quick to move beyond the waiting, to get something done. I wanna see something accomplished. I wanna see my prayer answered the way I want. And we forget that what Jesus might be doing in our lives is preparing us for that answer of prayer. He might be preparing us to receive the answer that he has, but we need to allow Jesus and the Holy Spirit to prepare, us, to prepare our hearts where we find ourselves today. And that can be hard at times, it can be challenging at times to feel that tension of desiring to be in heaven now and yet in the already not yet period in that we find ourselves so many times. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I like that because it says wait for the Lord but take courage because it takes bravery, it takes courage to wait on God, does it not? We, we, we can be like Abraham and we can skip God's timing and we can take Hagar to produce the heir that we want now in my timing rather than waiting God for do a miraculous work and bring Isaac. We, we can push things ahead and we can get frustrated with the way that God wants to do and we can smack the rock instead of talking to it and we can be frustrated in the way that we're not waiting on God and obeying him and his actions of what he wants us to do to produce the waters in the wilderness for the people of Israel. There are so many examples that I can think about in the Bible when we aren't willing to wait. We aren't willing to be like Moses who was, went to Moab to prepare before he was ever called into ministry by seeing the burning bush. He was in a desolate place where God was preparing him to do the greatest thing that God has ever called him to do. Oftentimes the best is yet to come. But oftentimes we're not willing or we're not willing to wait in order to receive what is yet to come. So so much of Christianity and I would say in so much of faith is just waiting on God and trusting him that he knows what he's doing and we believe that he is able right? This is a, so much I find as we mature, as I grow in the faith of what it means to trust him, of waiting. And I find that that waiting is most readily seen, readily felt through prayer. Let me explain. These people are praying and they are together in one accord and it is something that is hard for us as we find in my own heart, I, I question as I read this passage, am I devoted to prayer like these guys were? I, I find myself often identifying with the disciples just a few weeks prior who did what? <laughs> they fell asleep, did they not? Some of you just waking up for the first time, I'm joking, I'm giving you a hard time, I know. Um, I, yeah, I was a little tired this morning too. You have this, this falling asleep where Jesus said, won't you watch with me and pray with me in the middle of the night? He's about to be arrested. They don't know this, but he's about to be arrested. Won't you stay up with me and pray for a little while? And he comes and finds them three different times and they're asleep. And Jesus says, watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. Here we find the fellowship, no doubt in a time of confusion and uncertainty about what God's really gonna do, but knowing that they need to obey him and go to the city and wait, because God said he's gonna clothe us with power on high. I don't know how this is gonna happen, but what we should do as we're together is we should pray. And sometimes we're always like, well, there's all these other things I've tried to do. Finally, at last, I'll just give it a stab and pray. The last resort is prayer. 
rather than allowing ourselves to be devoted to probably the one thing that God really wants us to do, which is to pray, to be in relationship, to be in communication with him, to rise and pray, to be devoted to it, this idea of devoting myself to prayer. This is the word devoted, this constantly focusing my attention on prayer. I find that many times in life and in conversation with people, we find ourselves constantly devoting ourselves to worry, (laughs) constantly devoting ourselves to anxiety, constantly devoting ourselves to the unknown and to our fears rather than constantly devoting ourselves to the habit and the action and the relationship of prayer. That is our chief impulse as a Christian, that you must find yourself running to God, waiting on him, and talking with him. You're like, I don't know how to pray, I don't know the words to say, believe me, I'm there with you. I have to constantly check my motives every Sunday as I get up here and preach and pray before several hundred people and I think, if only I could say the words that people will be impressed with my prayers and yet that is the exact opposite thing that Jesus tells us to do, is it not? That the publicans and the Pharisees, they get up and they, they pray in public so people would see how religious and wonderfully good and pious they are. Rather, be like the one, the publican, who's in the corner and just, Lord, uh, forgive me, I am a sinner, or praying in a closet just so only that God would hear. And yet here we see this group coming together, devoting themselves in unity to prayer because prayer isn't flashy. Prayer is hard work and prayer is not something that I will say and attest to that every time I'm done praying, I feel like, wow, look at that house I just built. And you stand back and look at it and you're like, yeah, I did a lot of work today, you know? Sometimes my job feels like that. I leave and I'm like, what did I do today, you know? You can't always see the, the work that prayer accomplishes. That's what makes it difficult at times. That a lot of times you pray or you spend time in God's word and you're in silence just listening to God and being in his presence and we find ourselves, what exactly is this accomplishing or doing except for the fact that many times we need to run back and simply say God has commanded us to pray. We obey him in our communication and we recognize that as I speak to the creator of the world, this is a powerful thing that is happening and occurring in our midst. And I'm very thankful that there's a group now that meets faithfully to pray there's a, many times during the week there are people here meeting for prayer. The elders meet every Wednesday that pray. There are many of you that are meeting in small groups and praying. And sometimes, yes, we don't know all that God is doing through it, but I find that many times what God does through my prayers is often just working through uh, on me. And he's preparing me. He is encouraging me in the waiting. As I pray for him, waiting for that answer, I am being changed and revolutionary transformed to be more and more like him to find my will more and more aligned to his. And that way, my prayers will be answered according to his will, not my own. So often that is the, the, the habitual action of prayer and what it does in our hearts. And the Lord in Matthew 6 reminds us to pray. And let, when we pray, right? He, he gives us a model. He even lays it out for us as I close. I just wanna read this and then I am gonna close it in prayer. And I want us to just remind ourselves today of the importance of gathering together, being in fellowship with one another, and focusing on prayer. And let us read, I'm gonna just read for you, uh, as we could in Matthew 6, we remind ourselves what Jesus said. And when you pray, you you must not be like the hypocrites for love, love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners for they be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray your Father who is in secret. Your Father who is in sees in secret will reward you. So is that telling you? You gotta have the right words and the right flowery Christianese statements to say, and that's how God answers your prayer? No, no. He's talking about a genuineness of heart. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for those things don't matter, right? The words you say are all this in a sense, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Yet, verse nine, pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence with thanksgiving, with singing, and with prayer. Today, Lord, you have been with us. You are together here in your spirit. You bring us together. Lord, we tend, I tend towards breaking apart and disunifying. God, give me the spirit of unity. Give me the love that comes only from the fruit of the spirit. And God, give me a heart to pray. And Lord, we thank you for all that you have done within this church and this place and the people that you've brought together. God, help us to seek you on our knees. Help us to pray to you when we feel worried and we find that we know that there is fear in our hearts. Lord, you've given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. Lord, help us to pray to you with humility. I don't always know the words, Lord. I stumble over my words sometimes. I don't even know. And get God, help to see my heart first. As we pray together as a group, we find ourselves unified in it. And then as we sing to close, Lord, we know that you have done much work together in this place to bring us together, and yet you find joy that you are worshiped when your people gather to pray, to read God's word, and to sing. And we thank you for that time and this ability to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.